HashiCast from HashiCorp. Welcome to HashiCast, navigating cloud adoption for C-suites. The podcast dedicated to empowering C-suite executives as they navigate the complexities of cloud adoption. Welcome to the HashiCast Cloud Navigator podcast. I'm Christian Riley, field CTO here at HashiCorp, alongside my co-hosts, my other field CTO, Sarah Polan. This is episode three, and we're talking about managing risk in cloud adoption. And we're welcoming Gayatri Prakash, who's here from CloudBees. Welcome, Gayatri, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're here today to talk to us about risk? Sure, yeah. So... um my current role is with CloudBees as a GM for compliance, security and compliance. So that's my, um, the, uh, the cause at the moment is to educate and help companies manage IT risks. I have to be specific through education, enablement, tooling, et cetera. Background as such, I've been in development for many years. I've been uh, an entrepreneur starting, exiting a couple of companies, but now this is the space that I work with you know, range of companies, enterprises, as well as startups. The, the idea is, you know, most people have probably heard about Jenkins CloudBees is the Jenkins company. That's the origin of CloudBees. So enterprise version of Jenkins is what they started off with. And that process enabled teams to go faster because, you know, you are DevOps enabling the teams through, through Jenkins and CI and CD and all the good stuff. But then the security the poor cousin gets left behind. So it's very topical now, right now, to bring security into DevOps and make it DevSecOps. Problem is, not all DevSecOps are created or managed equal. So many people have their own interpretation of it and some more effective than others. So what we do at CloudBees now is to provide that end-to-end DevSecOps adoption and tooling for our clients. I think that's a really powerful thing and something that resonates, at least for me, within the market. It's difficult to implement these things, but it's even more difficult, especially once you start getting these teams who are a little bit more disparate under the same umbrella when it comes to risk. And when we're looking at that organizational risk, that's a challenge because we do need that overarching view to make sure that everything is within alignment. Can you tell us a little bit more about what drove you to create this product and the need that you saw there? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, the, anyone who's worked in IT within a regulated industry has come up against simple example, right? When you're trying to push a release across that you've been planning for, I don't know, six, 12 weeks, and right the moment when you want to press the button where you've hit all the functional requirements, you get lumbered with, I don't know, 10,000 plus CVEs. This is not just one customer one company story. This is across the board, the CV whack-a-mole nightmare that people have. Absolutely. And I've definitely felt that. Right. So, and and when you do that, you just realize the futility of running at 100 miles per hour for the first six weeks, only to come to a standstill with sort of drawn out arbitration of priorities between security compliance coders. Of course, the compliance and the security people always feel like they, they are invited to the party late, right? Mm. It's not for 
their claim is it's not for want of trying. So these are the challenges I've faced as a service provider to my clients. When you're a service provider, you're working on fixed price projects, it just, or even just look at it from a reputational perspective, you're managing expectations, right? Yeah. There's a reason you're putting that release out there because it's going to help the business and the customers. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, if you can't factor in predictability into that process, then that's a business risk, right? Oh, absolutely. And it's detrimental to continuity. And once you start getting into that continuity problem, that also affects your velocity. And as we've seen, I think, over and over again, from the service providers, that there's a real correlation between the speed of your development, um, and the functionality of your team and high functioning teams tend to be much faster and make that iteration faster. So it sounds like by integrating the risk and the perception of that risk um, and security across the board into the development process a lot earlier, in addition to making obviously more secure applications, you're hoping to help increase that velocity along the way. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's the idea because we know, let's park compliance for a second. Most companies have an internal security framework. I'd, I'd hope so, if they are in a regulated industry, right? Or even the ones that I've spoken to are not in the conventional fintech domain or, you know, the, even those now with the emerging cloud risk posture are operating in a zero trust way. And, you know, if they had to strike a balance between security and releasing something that hasn't fulfilled the requirement, they would weigh in on this front of the security side. So even with that kind of backdrop or landscape, if we we already know what good looks like, given the fact that you've worked out what, what your risk surface is and you have built a control, set of controls that need to be met, it is almost a no-brainer that that needs to be factored in right from the beginning. But I think where I think the shift left, I I struggle sometimes with that shift left in its conventional sense is because most people's idea of shift left is actually deploying a ton of tooling at the point where the developer is trying to commit code. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in his IDE, he gets 15 CVEs relating to the change that he's made. But as a developer, he or she, I should say, (laughs) um, (laughs) they're not security experts. They don't have the context because, you know, here's the deal, right? Not every CVE needs fixing. Shoot me, but it doesn't. Only 5% of the CVEs actually require a resolution. But they don't have the contextual knowledge to decide whether that CVE is within that 5%. Nobody has, to be perfectly honest. But they can't get that accurate you know, even to the point where this is the top 50% that we need to fix. Mm. Even that is not achievable at that level, because that's just what everybody says, you know, the word that keeps coming up is cognitive overload for a developer. Right. So yes, you can shift the tooling left because it has to be done that way, but don't make it the developer's problem, right? There has to be a single pain view across security developer, put a system in place that gives a single pane view right from the word go when a new code is built for across these teams, security, development, ops, so they can do a continuous prioritization. So, you know, do A, bring all those data sources together, B, prioritize it on a continuous basis based on something that matters to the business, whether that's application BIA or something or, or, or risk surface or call graphs. There are many methods of doing that. But Once you put a process like that, then 
you're bringing people together around a single source of truth because mm. the tool itself is not the silver bullet. It's a piece of, I guess, a data source, a single data source that brings people together so they can collectively make a decision on what is good to go. So Gayatri, I, I, it's fascinating listening. I, I learned a long time ago through you know some of my former life and some of the things I was exposed to in a large organization that fundamentally to manage risk, it's not kind of a one-shot deal, right? You have to have you know, a continuous loop or however you want to phrase it, where you know the process around managing risk is evergreen and understood because you know technology changes so fast and landscapes change so much that you know your CVE point notwithstanding, you know, we don't really know what we're dealing with when it comes to, you know, a lot of technologies that are out there. And, you know, I, I would point to things like software, composition analysis, dependency scanning on the things that you're talking about in left shifting. And of course, it's not uncommon for development organizations to want to take, I won't say shortcuts, but the most efficient path. And that can be by using open source components, for example, or things that, you know, haven't been coded from ground zero by them. And I think the more that left shift happens, the more convinced I am that, and I want to test this with you, of course, but you must speak to the people uh, that I'm kind of pointing to here on, on a daily basis in your role. But would you say that things like you know SCA and and dependency scanning and and the sort of the dangers of code relative to things like supply chain attacks and other things that we read about all the time are they finding their ways onto you know GRC governance risk um, compliance committee conversations at the board level or are they still kind of buried in IT and and you know that's somebody else's problem to think about because you know IT risk is either still not considered to be that big a deal in the overall GIC of a mega organization? Or do you see a level of maturity now where it's where it's absolutely part of the conversation? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I think software composition analysis is very topical at the moment with the US executive order and salsa and all that. I think there's a it's a mixture. So the IT teams are much more aware of open source vulnerabilities, supply chain vulnerability management and all that. So they are deploying the likes of dependency track and, you know, many scanners, to name a few, Black Duck SEA. There are many software composition analysis scanners. And we would also, for example, with our security solution, we would recommend that there is a SAS, DAS, IAS, SEA, all of these as part of the security framework used, invoked at the right time. So the IT teams, some are going so far as, for example, if you take Log4J, right? It took days, even for the, I'm talking billion dollar companies here, not small companies. It took them days and weeks just to establish the blast radius of Log4J, let Mm -hmm. alone fixing it because it was four lines of code that fixed the problem. So majority of the problem was identifying the risk surface and the exposure so that's now becoming a lot better with SBOM, continuous SBOM generation from build through to security analysis stage, you know, every stage. For example, people are generating SBOM. So there's an updated SBOM for every artifact that leaves the leaves the company or is in the production environment. And, and some are going a level further to say, one is, you know, known zero-day vulnerabilities. So sorry, known uh, supply chain vulnerabilities can be blocked at the Git commit level to say you're not using this library because this is vulnerable. And that's useful, I think. That's that's the sort of thing that should be shift lift. 
because you're blocking people from using known vulnerable packages. But then again, it's a whack-a-mole game because vulnerabilities emerge every day. So you've got to have that SBOM and the insight into the SBOM to say, do I have a utility where I can go and put a zero-day vulnerability as flagged up? There's a package, there's a version. Can I go put package and version and say, which services are exposed to this? Which applications, which repos, who needs to do what to fix it? This is all very achievable. At a GRC level, I've still not seen people understanding SEA. They understand the software supply chain risk has definitely bubbled up to the GRC level because of SALSA regulation. And I think there's one coming in Europe as well, and which is confusingly also called DORA. <laughs> now we have two DORAs. But I don't think that it goes down to the granularity that it needs to. So they, they know that they've got to hit the box. Do I have a bomb that fulfills? If I have a build time bomb, I fulfill SALSA. So I think the GRC level compliance regulations are very, very table stakes when it comes to security. Mm. This security implementation has to be much, much deeper. And I think slowly people are waking up to that because I've got customers coming up to me and asking, do you have a solution for SCA? Do you have a solution for SBOM? Can you do SBOM analysis? So this is coming up a lot in the conversations. I have a question for you kind of to follow up on that. What we're seeing is, I guess, initially security and risk, they were there to say no. Um, And I feel like we're getting to a place within that mentality that we're understanding we can no longer just say no across the board because that's going to impede our business abilities and our productivity um, and ultimately the quality of the product that we deliver at the end of the day. But now we're looking at something where we can't just say no, but we still have to make sure that we're accurately balancing our risk Do you have any advice or any insight in terms of how organizations can build these more resilient tech stacks and be able to shift left, but also have the resiliency in place if there is a problem? Yeah, that's a very good question as well. And I think when you're you're taking any sort of cloud transformation project, if if it is specific to, I mean, there's it could be a transformation project or it could be you're already on cloud, it doesn't matter. But the first exercise is to get that understand the risks, right? Because like Christian said as well, your risk surface can change as not just due to your application, but due to external factors as well. So having that understanding, shared understanding on what are the controls, what are the risks, what are the controls that we need to put in place to mitigate these risks? And then the biggest problem in this space is skill shortage, right? According to GitHub, I think last month they released the stats, there's one cybersec person for every, one appsec skill resource for every 500 application developers. That's the ratio we're looking at, right? Mm. So whilst most security people will say, oh, tool doesn't solve our problems, the thing is you need the tool to aid this, to help with the skill shortage thing. So automate those controls that you think are necessary for the process somehow. Orchestrate, you know, this kind of orchestrating security, the right type of security scans, build it into the process in a way where it's not just the developer's problem, but across the board, everybody gets a continuous view of how you're doing. And you're absolutely right, Sarah, you can't always, sometimes, you know, I have known even banking applications to go into production with 50 plus open issues because that's a risk somebody's accepting. Yep. But make it more formal process of 
you know, the even simple things like auditability of the triage process, auditability of the risk acceptance process at a CIO level, do I have visibility of all the risks that have been accepted for this particular service? Is there a pattern to the problems that we're accepting? Therefore, should I consider that in terms of which areas I should be investing in to enable the teams? Because you cannot improve this overnight. It's very important that it's a top-down understanding of what the organization needs to be, how they need to skill up and what tooling they need to have in place to take people along. But yeah, absolutely, you need to start from when the first line of code is written for a feature in the right way so that you have that continuous view, mm. not just from development to production, but also post-production. Kachi, if I may, I want to pick up on a couple of things and, and maybe just ask your opinion about the adaptability and, and sort of the speed of understanding, if that's even a thing. Uh, you know, as sort of cloud technologies evolve and, and you know, I think we've seen this over the past decade, right? I don't think it's a great surprise that as Sarah said, the original advent of cloud, be that, you know, SaaS or be that IaaS or whatever, came with a whole set of security concerns around is what we're getting more secure or less secure? And then the smarter people would say, well, more or less secure than what, right? <laughs> meaning meaning yeah. I have an understanding of my own capabilities. Now, you know, if I think about sort of the traditional realm of the CIO and the CISO, going back, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 years, as part of an attempt to understand and manage risk in a better way, we introduced things like ISMS, you know, so an, an information security management system, which was essentially a, a risk management framework that had statements of applicability. And, and if you so desired, would lead you to, you know, an ISO 17799 or 27001 accreditation. Now, having gone through that, I know how laborious that was to actually get the organization as a whole to understand how to deal with the components of a statement of applicability, what those controls are that you mentioned, you know, how those controls then become a risk mitigation or a risk transference or a risk acceptance. And, you know, I think all of those three things are valid. That was difficult enough in a world that was relatively static. And by that, I mean, you know, when we had everything behind the firewall and we all believe that that was the safest place and, you know, yeah. enterprises had either on-prem data centers or co-locations, but kind of had that in a sort of world that they could really understand and see. When you think about the evolution of application architectures in cloud and microservices and, and things that live and die in nanoseconds, how do you see organizations dealing with that evolution to say, well, you know, when we had our, our ISO accreditation, it was based on a set of controls that looked like this. And the theory was that everything was, it was under our control. From a practical perspective, I mean, do you have those kinds of conversations where, you know, folks are saying, well, this worked in this world, but as we extend out into a world where, you know, everything is much more dynamic, um, the, those statement of applicabilities might not always match. Does that come up in conversations? And if so, how are organizations dealing with the, the sort of the pace of change and observability and, and sort of just the whole disappearance of the traditional perimeter and things that you thought you could see, but now don't really have a great handle on? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very long topic, but, you know, I, I'll try and do a little bit of justice to that. And yes, absolutely, for those, a lot of the organizations that we work with, they have a combination of greenfield and brownfield projects, right? And they, when they are looking at cloud migration, they're looking at service-by-service service migration. And you're right, the biggest source of discomfort is the loss of that 
hardwired perimeter that people are used to. So suddenly, you, even your firewall, your VPC, everything is in cloud, right? And so everything starts with, in my view, that high-level design, identity, and access management is least privileged policy, if everybody understands that. I think, you know, a lot of the organization, with, and, and a lot of identity and access management cannot be automated, I have to say. But those conversations at the beginning, when you're designing that project, whatever, however fa- you phase it, and my recommendation for most people would be, that should be a phased, cloud migration should be phased, try and think of vendor locking, all of that good stuff distributed across clouds, if possible. But when it comes to designing the security architecture, it would be completely different because the risk landscape is completely different. And you start, and most people rightly so, start with the identity and access management piece. But the cloud providers, I have to say, do a lot of that themselves as well in that shared responsibility model. As long as you understand the identity and access management provided by the cloud provider, you could leverage that. There is a lot of hard work already being done. You need to just do that as part of the design to say which service needs, you know, building encryption from start, service to service encryption, whether that's Istio or whatever you're using in the cloud deployment, make sure that basics of what I would call FIPS compliance are met, you know, encryption levels are robust, make sure the access is always least privileged or zero trust inside and outside. And those things are codified. There are many things that can be codified. Anything that can be codified, codify it. Leverage as much of the cloud provider features as you can. And then you build more on top. For example, audit capability when privilege escalations happen. If you're using Kubernetes, make sure the Kubernetes cluster configuration is set with minimal access as well. So you are you can minimize the risk of east-west type attacks. So it is a mindset change. It's a paradigm shift. And I think this is where the skill gap will come into play. So you need to make sure the teams are skilled, skilled up. And I think to Sarah's question earlier, I think you were asking about resiliency. Mm. So things like auto-scaling, load balancing, making sure the alerts and monitoring are built. There's a whole raft of things. And I think that the worst mistake an organization can make is try and shoehorn this into some form of, you know, previously budgeted cycle. This has to be done properly, ground up, right? So make sure that the budgets are right and you've got that right working group across security. Definitely cannot be an afterthought. So security developers, architects, get them on the same page and architect the move first before execute it. In terms of organizations and organizations who have done this well, what are some key aspects in building out a better and more robust risk program that some of these organizations should be looking to? The best example I can think of is Netflix, actually. Mm. I mean, amongst my clients, obviously Netflix is not my client. I wish they were. They've really spearheaded this, right? The technologies that they've contributed as well and the chaos engineering, the practice of chaos engineering mm-hmm. that they pioneered, you know, intentionally, that the kind of building in the exercise to intentionally cause failures and see, identify weakness and all that. That's one, I think, and, and also a lot of technologies that they have developed now, the rest of the world is adopting when it comes to migrating to cloud and operating at scale. But what some of the things that they do well, I think, is to understand 
the unpredictability of this move and plan it plan it well right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you're building in redundancy, data recovery, you know, eliminating that kind of vendor locking, think mm-hmm. multi-cloud strategy. So if you've got an application, make sure that there is an abstraction of some sort so you're not tied in to one cloud provider. Single point, identify single points of failure, the databases, and because, you, you know, your weakest link is always going to be that one point in your system or platform that doesn't scale, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're building auto-scaling, everything else will auto-scale. But if that one Mongo database is inside an EC2 instance outside of Kubernetes cluster, then what do you do? That's going to be the first one that's going to fail, right? So that kind of exercise from the beginning um, and and phase it from a risk management perspective. Phasing a migration to cloud would be a lot better because you understand what your distinct goals are, shared understanding of what goal is for each phase, what the risks are, how are you going to mitigate that risk. You know that level of planning is what is needed. I think in addition to embracing some of the technologies that are out there now, most of which are out of the box with most cloud providers. Yeah, I think that's wonderful advice. So basically, the only thing that's certain is uncertainty, and we need to be able to design yeah. for that and also well, make sure that we're doing this at a gradual pace. Or yeah, there are a couple phase. of other things I think we should think of, which I forgot to mention, is things like data privacy, right? Mm. Because when if you are providing a global service, the data protection laws across the geographies, geo-specific data protection laws with GDPR for Europe, and um, there is... For example, in in China and India, they have different laws. Their citizen data cannot leave. So things like that, if you don't plan from the beginning to say, okay, we're going to have a hybrid model, there will be Alibaba Cloud, there will be AWS here, and we need to be able to obfuscate the data that getting transferred from that geography out to the centralized data for high-level management dashboards, et cetera, those kind of things are also very hard to do in retrospect. Mm-hmm. So understand your geography, understand the geo-specific data protection and privacy laws, and factor that into your data traffic. I cannot agree more. And I think, you know, being an American working in Europe for me has been really enlightening because there are so many differences and nuances to the, to the different regions. And um, being a European working in America was the same for me. So. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, it's been a really enlightening conversation and an absolute pleasure. This has been awesome. I can't believe the time's gone so quickly. This is a topic that obviously I, I hope our listeners are enthralled by because I, I literally could talk about this stuff all day. I, I think we're we're literally at the tip of a of, of an iceberg of more regulation, more compliance need, you know, evolution of technology, yeah. not to mention what's going to happen in the world of privacy and compliance around LLMs, but we'll save that for another day. Exactly. Gary. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get you back on the podcast and talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much again to Gayatri and for everybody for listening in. And Sarah, I'll leave it to you to wrap up the show. Thank you for having me and good luck with the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to see you the next time on Cloud Navigator. HashiCast. 
from HashiCorp. Get the latest episodes automatically in your favorite podcast app. Just click follow or subscribe and find out more at HashiCorp.com. 